like John said, the adaptation you get that allows you to complete a certain thing is going to be specific to the way that you train. And that doesn't necessarily mean that those adaptations are going to allow you to not have pain. Welcome to Training Room Talk, powered by Precision Performance Physical Therapy. Here we will discuss all things related to physical preparation, including rehab, performance, and education. Hey guys, welcome back to Training Room Talk, powered by Precision Performance Physical Therapy. My name is Dr. Max LePage, and I am here with Dr. John Herding. Hey guys, how are you? Dr. Nisha Meyer. Hey guys. And future Dr. Hannah Lewis. Hey guys. Um, and we're going to cap off this series of Return from Rehab with our last installment, where we're going to be talking a little bit about the considerations in returning back to the gym after your rehab or trying to kind of work around maybe some nagging injuries that you're going through now. And this is going to be related to the core. Um, so I think it's important when we have this discussion, obviously we've been framing the previous episodes based on um, certain of the common injuries, pains, pathologies, tissue sensitivities that you might have that limit you from doing that specific movement. So with the squat, we talked about knee pain. With the hinge pattern or the pull, we talked about low back pain. Um, the reality is that for when we're looking at the core and you know, we were kind of having this conversation about what are we even talking about when we're talking about the core. Uh, there's different philosophies that may define that generally differently. Um, and we can kind of start by getting into that when we do. Uh, but it's important to recognize that when we're going through some of the modifications for some of the injuries that you might suffer, um, the reality is that the core is pretty involved in everything that you do, regardless of how you define it. When we're talking about squatting, benching, deadlifting, pull-ups, overhead press, rows, um, sprinting, jumping, all of those kind of general sport movements and general human movements can be impacted by injuries related to the core. Um, so let's start by kind of defining the core. You can, well, just honestly, because I think that there may be some variation in how we each conceptualize it. So we'll just start with you, John, see what you think of when you're saying the word core, what is it that you're thinking of? So I, I, to me, the core is everything from your neck to your knees, right? Because in that, you know, traditionally, um, people will think core is like abs, right? Um, and and that, that midsection of the body. But when you look at a, um, the human anatomy and the skeleton and the, the muscle, um, you know, it's really you have muscles that attach to the base of your skull that then go down and attach to the top of your um, back, right? So that's the beginning of your core. And then you have muscles that then segment each level of your spine and then once you get down into your pelvis, you have your some, even some of your pelvic floor muscles that also then, like some of your adductors, your groin muscles that then attach at your knees, right? So theoretically, knee position could dictate pelvis position, which dictates your um, abdominal wall position, which dictates ribcage position, which dictates your neck position, theoretically, right? So when you pull up the human anatomy and you look at these things, there's there's, of course, deeper muscles, but you have deep muscles that will dictate the proximal position of your trunk that run from the base of your skull down to your knees. Um, so that's where we've talked about a million times on this podcast, position first is gonna dictate muscle function and then from there you can build stability. 
Um, and those are the things I'm thinking about when I think about um, core is how can I influence the position to make sure that the muscles that attach your torso to your neck are stabilizing appropriately. Of course, all of the torso, the stuff going on in your torso and your rib cage, and then how are your adductors and some of your hip muscles that dictate hip position, which set the bottom of your core and your pelvic floor, how are they um, dictating your proximal position and stability? So yeah. so it's, it's really like, it's not just this core abs stuff, it's trunk and how it relates to your extremities. Yeah, so the, it's probably unanimous in agreement that when we look at the core, regardless of how you define it, it's fair to draw some relationship between positioning and function there for distal segments and how those function, like you mentioned, the knee and um, the hip and other areas. Nisha, what do you think whenever you're thinking core? Like, what are you conceptualizing there? I literally the same thing that John just said. I don't know if there's anything else I can add, but I'm thinking full body, maybe looking either like top down or bottom up and depending on the different injury a patient may have and if core or general strengthening is gonna be a component, I might focus a little bit more on like more proximal hip strengthening, looking at hamstrings, adductor, maybe um, different components of that. And then also looking a little bit more upper if it's something involved with your shoulders or thoracic cage. Um, another thing to kind of separate for core, I think a lot of people are so focused on like my core strength, like I don't have a strong core. But a lot of the times I think people look at core endurance and they think that like acclimates their core strength. Like they're like, I can't hold a plank for a long time. But that really is your core endurance in my book, so. But I also think with, as far as that concerns, Nisha, it's um, training is specific to the activity you're performing, right? Fitness is spe activity specific. You can have a runner that can run a marathon and then you go ask them to bike 20 miles, they can't bike 20 miles or vice versa, mm -hmm. right? So like people can do wall sits for three minutes, but they can't squat 150 pounds. Mm -hmm. Or people can hold a plank for two minutes, but they can't do you know, a couple sit-ups because they're, they're different types of muscle contractions and dip, different types of training. Mm -hmm. And you can get really good at holding planks if you train that religiously. Right, right. right. Um, so I think it's, that goes back to me to positions gonna dictate muscle function. And I think in, you know, I, I buy the weak core argument for like women that have had C-sections and no therapy after because there's been a compromise in the ab wall. There's several different layers and there's been a trauma that hasn't been dealt with. Um, but to say a 300 pound squatter has a weak core, right? I, I would disagree with that. And I think it just becomes positions going to dictate the function and then being able to train through all different types of muscle contractions and train them well with good position, I think. Um, and then creating pressure behind that is kind of where the magic happens. Right, and like from our hands, like it's all subjective how we would even dictate their core strength because my my own pressure versus some your pressure is gonna be completely different. So really what values more is like, what does it look like functionally and how do they perform? Yeah, I mean like if I told you to assess arm strength, what would you do? Like right now? Yeah. Like like active you... range of motion, MMT, and then I would have them go functionally, do overhead press, whatever that may be. Yeah. But like you're you're really separating it into shoulder, bicep, tricep. Like mm -hmm. you're looking at strength to some degree, and then you're going to maybe look at a functional thing. Mm -hmm. With core, for whatever reason, we think that we can assess the whole thing. 
with one test. Right. Like lowering our legs down to the table. And no other region of your body do you, you know, assess arm strength. You assess maybe delt strength. You assess maybe elbow, like flexor strength or elbow extensor strength. But you're never assessing arm strength. You're assessing specific muscles or patterns. Mm. And for the core, one of the like realities is, like John said, the adaptation you get that allows you to complete a certain thing is going to be specific to the way that you train. And that doesn't necessarily mean that those adaptations are going to allow you to not have pain. Like if you can plank for 60 seconds without shaking, does that mean you're not going to have pain? No, not necessarily, because if you're trying to squat or deadlift under heavy load and you're not able to maintain an an efficient position, then how long you held a plank may not be relevant to that task demand that you're asking of yourself. So I think it's one of those things where when you try to assess strength with the same method that you would any other body region, it doesn't make sense to apply a single motion, a single test to assess what is a whole culmination of, like you guys already defined, anything that's really attaching to the spine, attaching to the thorax, and just to your torso in general is included in this concept of core. How are we going to assess that by lowering your legs to the table? Like that's just bound to be an incomplete assessment. Are there certain things that you guys try to look at in order to identify maybe there is some weakness or some endurance obviously it's going to be specific to an individual but what are you guys using to try to add some objectivity to assessing is the core something that is a quote-unquote problem yeah so i this brings up a whole an entirely whole different debate but i mean i think when you guys were just talking about manual muscle tests and then even core objectifying core strength it's how how are you looking at some of the ancillary subjective stuff like are they holding their breath and um, gaining proximal compensatory stability with the valsalva maneuver when they're just lowering their legs right so i I, it's hard to objectify core stability because you know you might max you might be you know you when you do a leg lowering test which is one of the you know the the common ways to test it you might be bearing down face turning red really pressurizing with the valsalva maneuver to me that's not authentic core strength right because that's a compensatory way that you should you're um you're stabilizing your torso there's obviously a time and place for valsalva in healthy individuals trying to lift maximal amount of weight but when you're doing a sub max leg lowering you shouldn't be um, compensating by holding your breath and bearing down right so to me uh, on a test like that it would be all right can you breathe can you maintain proximal positions like ribs stacked on top of your hips so that your dive your diaphragm is stacked on top of your pelvic diaphragm and you can pressurize through that and can you breathe relatively normally as you're maintaining position yeah and i'll say like when i'm thinking of doing an assessment like that when you think of um, someone's fine motor control right so their brains the amount of area in your brain that's dedicated towards motor function of your hands and feet is far higher than your torso Mm -hmm. right that's very non-specific single nerves or single groups of nerves are innervating larger surface area larger regions Um, so it tends to be that folks have a harder time with developing an awareness of how to position 
their core, you know, how to position their pelvis, how to modify the position of their spine and how to control those muscles just because we aren't, you know, on a day to day using our core with any fine motor precision like we are our hands. At least most of us are not. Um, so we don't develop that skill. And when you're going through and testing core, obviously there's a potential confounding factor where maybe you have someone lower their legs to the table and they're bearing down Valsalva, they're losing positioning. That could be due to core muscle weakness, but there's also this component of this person may just have no awareness of where their body is in space. And generally teaching someone to pronate or supinate their ankle and their foot while standing is much easier than teaching someone how to tilt their pelvis and control their core position, just given the fact that their brain's adapted to better fine motor skills at their distal extremities than their core. Um, so I do think that when you're looking at core strength, some of the testing that you're seeing in terms of their ability to produce whatever motion or whatever skill comes from them maybe just having no awareness. And we work with athletes, so a lot of them are uh, a little bit more apt to you know, understand their body and their movement and their position. But if you take someone with very little athletic background or generally like younger athletes who haven't developed that much awareness, sometimes they seem really weak in their core. And my bias would be to think that maybe they just have no idea what they're doing. They're just trying to make it through the task that you've asked them to complete. Yeah, I think on that end, like I put a little bit more stock in can they maintain that position? And like John said, do it comfortably, like not look like they're gas. Can they talk? Can they maintain that position? And then if they can do it in whatever setting we're doing it, can they do it functionally? And can I challenge them in that position? Like say we're going into like an offset farmer's carry, like can they maintain that with minimal sway or difficulty? And then on the opposite end with that awareness and positioning, um, can they continue to find that on their own with me cueing them less? I would find that as like, that's development in that area. Yeah, and I, I think that that's one of the areas that makes this region challenging is just that a lot of what you're using to kind of inform what you think might be contributing is kind of subjective. Right. You know, you're watching someone do a farmer's carry. You don't, you're not measuring the distance of the dumbbell to the ground and the up and down variance of the dumbbell given their you know, ability to produce a smooth contract. Like, it's just, eh, that looks like it's harder than I feel like it should be. Or you seem to be, you know, this seems to be more effortful than this should be given your size and how strong you are in other movements. Or, you know, yeah, it seems like you're breathing in a way that doesn't, align well with what I would typically conceive as being someone who has good core control or a strong core. So it is hard when you're thinking about, you know, for one, teaching someone, hey, how do you assess a weak core? Like, well, we have a couple of tests that very non-specifically assess, you know, individual regions. And then other people might say, well, can they squat, bench and deadlift and do their functional patterns with, you know, good position? And that's a core test enough. Uh, I don't honestly know where I stand in terms of all that stuff, and I don't know that I would have a particularly great system to teach someone on how to assess core. I think that is one of those things that, as much as I hate to say it, is like just an experience thing. There is a subjective quality there. And coaching enough people, you start to develop a little bit better of an understanding of like, I think that this may be a limiting factor for them. Then you go down that route, 
you maybe create some change there with position or with uh, strengthening techniques and you see that that does allow them to do something a little bit more quote unquote efficiently or with less pain and then you kind of confirm what you were originally thinking um, whether that's a fallacy or not is left to debate but I think it is one of those things that's more coaching experience based to some degree I would agree. Um, so to bring it back around, so things that we're looking at when we're rehabbing someone back from a core injury, um, to restate it, it's it's can you find the positions to put you in the best, uh, in, in the optimal space to utilize your proximal muscles for stability, right? So it's like, again, that goes, for me, it goes into position to find stability and then you can kind of build strength from there and strength and stability are sometimes interchangeable and they happen concurrently um, but then that's where you can build performance off of with power so say let's take like a, a concrete example someone comes to you with we'll just eh, let's not go low back pain let's go uh, a sports hernia so they have this fraying on their MRI at their adductor or abdominal insertion on the pelvis. They're having some pain there. It's kind of become a chronic issue six to eight months. Um, they're a soccer player and they want to get back to playing soccer. Um, and they're coming to you, whatever, you don't, you know, almost nothing about them. You've gone through your exam. There's not a ton that's like jumping out at you in terms of strength or range of motion limitations. It's really just pain that's provoked when they do certain things on the field. And you're thinking, hey, I want to investigate a little bit of what related to the core might be contributing. What might be something that you have them do and, and some of the things that you're looking for when you are assessing that? So looking for it's like pain provocation. And and sometimes sports hernias get tricky just because there's, there's I think, hundreds of different yeah. things that fall into that. It's kind of right. a gross term. And that's why they now, it's athletic pubalgia is like unexplained mm -hmm. pain. It could be a million things. Um, but basically it's what's causing stress on that area that maybe caused it the tear or the, the injury. Um, how can we promote position stability to take stress off of that area? But then also how can we help to reintroduce stress to get usually athletic pubalgia, it's a tendon injury. So how do we then reintroduce stress to that specific tendon to get it to adapt like the body does to enable to um, help tolerate more tension as it relates to progressing back into activity? So what might be like an exercise or a movement that you would have someone maybe start with to see if they have some baseline capability in terms of managing or organizing their, you know, torso, trunk, core? So for something like this, I love like a heels elevated bridge with a reach yeah. because um, that's a hamstring focused exercise where you get someone to gently pull, tuck their pelvis underneath them to get a good zone of apposition with their um, the rib cage stacked on top of their diaphragm when stacked on top of their pelvic diaphragm. Um, you get a, a ball squeeze to get adductors to kind of help close an IPA and set the pelvic floor. And maybe that puts a little tension if it's a um, adductor based sports hernia, even if it's a rectus abdominis or an oblique based sports hernia, like the adductors pulling in an IPA and stabilizing a pelvic floor will help, you know, put the affected ab muscles in a right, the right position to then tolerate stress. So if you have a heels elevated bridge where someone's pulling through their heels to get tension for their hamstrings to tuck them under, squeezing a ball to get adductors, 
and then reaching reaching at like a either straight up or um, 135 degree angle to start to get obliques to kind of bring their ribs down and in towards their pelvis and you create that a good cylinder like the soda can pop model by Mary Massery Mm -hmm. like that helps bring everything in together and then from there they can breathe through it learn to pressurize authentically and that hopefully you can build off of that as you work into planks have them hold planks for breaths and instead of in a good position instead of time and all that kind of stuff yeah so you're doing the 90 90 hip lift you um the person has now progressed to the point that they're looking pretty good in their ability to create that tilt in their pelvis they have a good awareness of the control there um they're getting the reach component they're breathing in a way that you deem is like efficient or that you're kind of uh inflating in the way that you want Um, So the position looks pretty good. You're obviously getting some load through whatever sensitive tendon or tissue um, was irritated in generally isometric fashion um, if they're holding that position. So you're maybe creating some pain relief there from the isometric component as well. Um, And now you're at a point like, okay, I want to progress this forward and move on to things that are are moving in the direction of sports specific or of Um, just kind of common progressions from there. So I know you mentioned a plank um, and maybe holding it for a certain number of breaths. What else might be a thing? Like, do you then take these concepts and have them go through a hinge pattern, have them go through a squat pattern, or do you try to incorporate that stuff in more dynamic movements, like stuff on the field? Where's your kind of thought process? It all depends on their goals and what they're trying to get back to. And it probably, the plan of care probably incorporates all of that. Yeah. Right. Um, what about you, Nisha, when you're having someone sports hernia or adductor tendinopathy, whatever you want to kind of classify it as, you're thinking about addressing the core in some capacity or investigating it. What might be something that you use? Yeah, I feel like you can go two ways with it. Typically, I like to reassess everything. Let's say we start with like the pelvic tilt and reach that John did that covers a bunch. You can either, if it's more isolated at the adductor, I love using Copenhagen's or anything that you could really modify and be like, all right, how can we put a little bit more stress, more load through this? Maybe we do the Copenhagen with the knee bent. Maybe we're feeling good. It's the full leg on that elevated side plank. So many different ways to change that one exercise and isolate the load through the tissue with the issue and then from like that (laughs) and then um, progress it into something functionally. Then I'm making me doing um, banded walkouts with like a side shuffle that puts emphasis on using that adductor for their sport. Maybe it's a lunge. I like to kind of light it up and then load it in a way that's functionally. Um, So that's typically where I go with my plan of care. Okay, cool. Any thoughts, Hannah? Uh, all sounds good to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hannah, what did you learn in school or are learning or, well, you're done with all your coursework. So what have you learned? Um, I know we talked about this a little bit off air, but what did, what did you learn in terms of the relevance of the core, what it means, what it even is, and like maybe how, how it's assessed? The school version yeah so we well as far as how it's assessed we definitely learned all of the you know classic what we talked about in the beginning you know the leg lowering those things that really you know we already discussed but and a little bit of this so John and I talked a little bit yesterday where I feel like my generation of you know PT school class is in this weird place between uh, 
we're being taught by the people who really use that and it's still kind of being used and so kind of what we got in school was the classic those assessments and then kind of yes it's important see what your CIs do on clinicals kind of make up your mind from there Uh, so not really good I would say practical yeah uh, application from school but it's it's definitely been good to see you know being here and with this population seeing what we're talking about applied in a more functional and almost more appropriate way yeah and and I like the reality is if you have to teach a course on it it is tough because like I said in the beginning it's not some it's something that is more subjective that maybe could be viewed as being a little less like evidence driven just because there's not a ton out there on it from like primary research perspective I mean we have information about you know core stabilization programs versus general exercise for certain conditions and those things but you know the position of your pelvis on a deadlift is not something that we know the relevance of from a research standpoint but there is obviously a ton of kind of bro knowledge and historical coaching knowledge that goes into those concepts and then the ability to take you know biomechanic knowledge of anatomy physiology physics and apply that with rationales that are evidence-based looking at you know load tolerance capacity how we're going to progress things Um, you can you know start to formulate some ideas which we've already touched on a lot of uh, about how it becomes relevant but that's something that schools have a hard time balancing from a teaching standpoint because as john can attest to when you have students come in the the amount of coaching experience that they have especially from a performance standpoint is not particularly high Um, so a lot of these concepts are completely new to a student who um, doesn't have that background Um, so yeah it's a challenge Um, for sure yeah and i think i think going back to like what you just said about bro knowledge max like i think there's a lot to be said for that because if you look back at even bodybuilding populations they were doing blood flow restriction just anecdotally because they figured out it works for decades before it was really being researched yeah and this is like the i i use this example all the time which is like what's the rep range that the literature shows to be generally effective like any rep range can be effective for hypertrophy but that maximizes your volume in a way that you can really accumulate it to create the best hypertrophy like 8 to 12 that's like the common literature recommendation in terms of maximizing that that's like the exact rep range that Arnold tended to train in in pumping iron decades ago so the reality is like a lot of general gym practice does come ahead of research and researchers hate to hear that and a lot of them who aren't in the gym world won't admit that but the reality is that like yeah we're still doing the same rep ranges research just confirmed it 15 years later and you have to be willing to accept that there may be certain things that you can do that offer value that you've seen work in the clinic in the gym that just don't have the support there from a true research standpoint and that's okay as long as you're not as long as you're not replacing the things that we do know as being evidence like if you're coming in and you're saying oh i have this theory about how to treat a tendinopathy and you're not loading it because you think your theory is superior to that 
then that's a problem because we know loading is going to be beneficial for tendons and you're replacing a valuable known treatment for something that's purely theory-based. But in the context that we don't have a lot of evidence, but we're going to combine some thought processes with um, what we know to be true, then yeah, like there's nothing wrong with some, some bro knowledge. Bro or gal. Well, that's why evidence-based doesn't mean you find a study to support it. Yeah. Evidence-based is conglomerating experience, studies, you know, subjective things you've tried in the clinic through your clinical experience, and then bringing that all together, right? So if you're just going based off of studies, you're probably 10 or 15 years behind in the research. Because Arnold was doing all these things, and PT is a relatively new profession, strength and conditioning is relatively new, exercise physiology and research is all relatively new. Like even the ancient, the strong men back in the 1800s were figuring these things out and getting pretty strong, right? So that's why evidence-based doesn't necessarily mean I can find this in a study, right? It's a conglomeration of all of these different influences that form an opinion. You still need to have your your reasons for doing things, but just because in a debate you can't back it up by something that's posted in the literature doesn't mean it's not evidence-based. Yeah, and this is this goes to an even broader concept of like l- evidence against something does not necessarily mean is not the same as absence of evidence. So if I don't have a body of literature to support something that I think may be helpful, that's very different from having evidence that directly negates what I'm doing and then just ignoring that. For for example, like ultrasound. Ultrasound was used for a long time with pretty much an absence of evidence. And they said, this is effective. People are reporting less pain. We're going to continue to use it even though we don't have the research. Then research came out that suggested that it was ineffective. And at that point you say, okay, what I was observing in the clinic doesn't match up with empirical evidence. So I will now significantly downgrade the importance of this in my plan of care or remove it completely and focus on other things that we think may work or that we know do work. Um, And so, yeah, it's understanding that just because evidence isn't out there right now, that doesn't mean that it can't be a part of your practice. And until there's evidence negating it, um, I don't know, it's, it's a... That's a whole separate episode that I think we should dedicate ourselves to. So we will save you all the the pain and misery of listening to that conversation. But this is why we need longer podcasts. We need like two hour long conversations. We can just go on these tangents. I'm getting a lot of head shaking here. So um, we're going to close it out there. Hopefully you guys got some actionable or at least uh, relatively nuanced perspectives on kind of the core, how that might influence Um, your return and the extent to which it influences kind of all the movements you might be trying to perform Um, and then kind of conceptualizing again how some of the concepts that John discussed and how it may actually influence things distally and things that um, may otherwise seem unrelated may actually be related to position to muscle function and all of the above so Uh, Hopefully you guys got some insight there. And if you have any questions, you can reach out to us at Precision Performance PT on Instagram, on the Google, um, and everywhere else. You can find me at maxlepage.dpt on Instagram. Uh, You can find me at spt.hannah. nishameyer.dpt. And johnherding underscore dpt. And we hope everyone is staying safe, staying healthy, and we will talk to you guys in the next episode. Thanks. Did you know? 
We now offer personalized remote programming, one-on-one -on -one video telehealth sessions, and mentorships for both students and professionals. If you're interested in any one of these, please email John at J-O-N at precisionperformancept.com and he can help you get started today.